Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for being with me. As I mentioned at the top of the hour here, the feast day of Angela Roncalli, Pope St. John XXIII, yesterday, October 11th, corresponds with the anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council, October 11th, 1962. Sixty years, six decades now. Those of us who love the documents of Vatican II, uh, those of us whose lives have been shaped by the teaching contained in those documents, like to believe that the meaning of the Second Vatican Council is fairly straightforward and obvious. Look, every teaching institution must reconsider who they're teaching. Uh, You have to consider the background, the thought forms, the language of the audiences you're trying to reach. The Catholic Church has been at this for 2,000 years, and most everybody acknowledges that it was due to reconsider how it should go about teaching in light of a period of modern history that we call, quote, modernity. Modernity is that period of history characterized by three items. I I call them secularization, pluralization, privatization. Secularization, that means pushing God to the margins of social life. Okay, He doesn't play a big part in our life together. Pluralization, that's the process by which a society comes to accept and even approve a wide number of competing religions or philosophies or worldviews. Nobody dominates. And then privatization. That's the social process which tells religious people to keep their faith private. It's kind of like a hobby. It's good you have one, but, you know, keep it to yourself. So Vatican II came about to help the church engage uh, the modern world that was afflicted with these tendencies towards pushing God to the sidelines, uh, having to deal with a number of competing religions and worldview options, and also this pressure to keep your faith private. Now, there are those who think that the Second Vatican Council was less concerned with sharing a timeless message in a changing world than with revising the very structures of the Church itself. For these people, Vatican II was about power sharing. It was about who gets to make decisions in the Church. Uh, How do we democratize doctrine, you might say? We see this now probably best in what we observe with the German Synodal Way. Um, but no matter you know where it comes where you come down on this, I believe that the Second Vatican Council wasn't fundamentally about power sharing. It was fundamentally about reviving our understanding of how God has revealed Himself and how we can most effectively communicate that revelation. But no matter where you come down, uh, whether you're with the German Synodal Way or with John Paul II and Benedict XVI, it still is valuable to take a look at John. Pope John the Twenty Third and what he was trying to do. So let me share a bit why John the Twenty Third called the Council and why it remains important. I'll set the stage. October nineteen sixty two, the month the Council opens. What's going on? U.S. astronaut Walter Shera is orbiting the Earth six times. The Beatles released their first single, "Love Me Do," in the United Kingdom. Doctor No, the first James Bond film, premiered at the London Pavilion featuring Sean Connery. Just three days after the council opens, a U.S. spy plane photographed Soviet nuclear weapons stored in Cuba, and President Kennedy found the United States in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The irony wasn't lost on social commentators. Many of them noted that just as the Prince of Peace had gathered his bishops together in Rome, the world was quaking under a cloud of nuclear annihilation and threatened by a new outburst of popular culture 
that would upset previous notions of morality and taste. The Second Vatican Council was called in a world of conflict that was challenging the church at many levels. Now, we're so familiar with the church that we often forget its cosmic significance. The church exists in the world as the invitation of Jesus Christ. Through us, he's inviting the whole world to be reborn. And by its very nature, by its very calling, the church of Jesus Christ must have one foot in eternity and one foot planted in the flux of human history, just like the incarnation itself, you might say. We are privileged to proclaim eternal timeless truths in a world that is forever in conflict between divinely given human aspirations for the good, the true, and the beautiful, and a sinful drivenness, human drivenness, to lord it over others, gratify our selfish pleasures, and create a utopia without God. These ongoing conflicts between the children of God and the world of flesh and the devil bring about consistent conflict and change, right? We've seen it in our own lifetime. In the 60 years since the Council, the United States put a man on the moon. The Soviet Union, with its Leninist brand of communism, collapsed. But China, with its newer version of Maoist communism, now, has now emerged as the global superpower and opponent of the United States and the West. In 1962, secular Muslim leaders imagined that they were now the princes of the Muslim world. Uh, they thought they had pushed militant jihadism into small enclaves of true believers, many of whom they had imprisoned. But they were wrong. Today, militant jihadism is one of the most powerful political movements, not just in the Middle East, but throughout the world. And it's become, of course, a major persecutor of Christians. After the West put down the pagan ideology of Hitler's Nazism, uh, we had our own pagan fling at the end of the Second Vatican. Excuse me, at the end of the Second World War, we had the sexual revolution starting slowly with the Kinsey Report, then Hugh Hefner and Playboy, then the Pill, and then the floodgates open up in the '60s, leaving millions of souls scarred, marriages shattered, bodies diseased, and sexual morality becomes little more than anything goes as long as adults consent, no matter how debased the actions might be. It's grown so chaotic now that we're confused about what it means to be even male or female, or neither, or both. The rise of the Internet, social media have exposed us to a range of opinion, some wise, much inane. It's created a tendency for people to think that if they've shared something, that they are now experts in it. We have access to information and data unlike any generation in human history, and we're just beginning to see how artificial intelligence is changing the workplace and our lives. Since John the 23rd, we've seen the revolution in mutual funds and 401ks. Uh, we've seen the end of segregation in America. We've seen the idea that everyone should now have a college degree, just like we used to think everybody should have a high school diploma. This is the world John the 23rd didn't yet know. But Jesus Christ did know, and now we have the documents of the Second Vatican Council to help us take on the challenges of our own day. I confess, I love the documents of the Second Vatican Council. Without them, I may not have made my way back to the Catholic faith. So I get irritated when I hear people complain about the Council, especially if it becomes clear that they haven't read the documents themselves. Since the Council had become a standard part of Catholic conversation for 60 years— we take it for granted that we all know what it was about, right? It's, it's in the atmosphere. It's part of our mental furniture. 
And so we might not recognize how dramatic was this event. It was a major media event between 1962 and 65. Without question, it was the chief religious event of the 20th century. And it was a major media event for all events uh, in the 20th century. Not the greatest event, but a major event. Councils are big deals. Uh, They're called to address problems. They're called to renew our sense of mission. They're, They're called to define aspects of doctrine which may be in question. And councils inevitably bring change. You go back to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15. St. Luke describes a gathering of church leaders in 55, 56 AD. They're facing what was the most vexing question of the first generation of the church. The church had been born in Jerusalem out of the divinely guided history of the Jewish people. But now non-Jews were believing in the Jewish Messiah. He was the savior, not of the Jewish race, but of the entire world. How are we to handle this conflict, the early apostles and bishops asked. Well, they did handle it, and the apostles sent out instructions to the universal church, and the mission of the church went forth from Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it broke the boundaries of an ethnic religion to become a universal faith. So remember, councils are not called when all is well, when all is quiescent, when all is placid. Councils are called when things are uncertain. Maybe things look good on the surface, but underneath there may be some rot. People are confused. We may be facing perilous times. And so it was in 1962 when St. John the Twenty-Third made bold to call a council. Remember, the world that then was is no more. It's gone away, just like the Beatles are done with, right? And the Soviet Union is over with. But we're still implementing the reforms of the council. And as I said earlier, it ticks me off when I hear people criticizing the council because it brought change, and some people don't like change. And I'll admit, the change hasn't been implemented intelligently, sensitively, or very effectively. Uh, The stories that people tell me who lived through that, I was, by that time, I was pretty much away from the church, but I've heard horror stories of the early implementation of the council and Uh, what happened subsequent to the council. It's not unusual, though. Councils are called to bring reform, clarity, renewal, and it always brings about disruption and change. You know, we've had 21 ecumenical councils in our 2,000-year history, and they've really been peaceful affairs. George Weigel's new book on the Second Vatican Council quotes Gregory of Nazianzus, a 4th-century doctor of the Church. Gregory had a pretty dim view of Episcopal gatherings. He turned down an invitation to gather with a group of bishops to sort out the work of the First Council of Constantinople. Listen to what he wrote. To tell the truth, I'm convinced that every assembly of bishops is to be avoided, for I've never experienced a happy ending to any such council, not even the abolition of abuses, but only ambition or wrangling about what was taking place. End of quote. So, Keeping in mind what has happened in the last 60 years, keeping in mind the towering importance of an ecumenical council, keeping in mind that we have been blessed with three saints, John the 23rd, Paul the 6th, John Paul the 2nd, and at my turn there, Benedict the 16th, not a saint, but a great man. They've interpreted and applied the council for us over the last 60 years. So I want to listen now to John the 23rd as he describes the work 
he intended for the council. Let me just quote him here. Quote, The divine renovator of human salvation, Jesus Christ, who conferred on the apostles the mandate to preach the gospel to all peoples, to support and guarantee their mission, he made the comforting promise, Behold, I am with you all days, even unto the consummation of the world. This divine presence is noticeable above all in the gravest periods of humanity. Then it is that the bride of Christ shows herself as the teacher of truth and minister of salvation by deploying all her power of charity, prayer, sacrifice, and suffering. The same invincible spiritual means used by her divine founder, who is his life, who in his life solemn hour declared, have faith, for I have overcome the world. The same Savior and founder is with us to this day. For the rest of the hour, we're going to take a look at the Second Vatican Council as an ongoing theological event. My guest, Dr. Matthew Levering. 